0: By my partner in all things strategery, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C., and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Elliot, how are you doing?
1: Uh, I'm doing very well, uh, Eric. Thank you. And uh, very eager to have our conversation today, which will center on a book, The War Came to Us. Uh, which I think is really one of the best books out there. And there are actually now quite a few about the war in Ukraine, which you and I have discussed a lot. So back over to you to introduce our guest.
0: Well, our guest is Christopher Miller, who has been a correspondent for The Kiev Post, for BuzzFeed News, for Politico, and now currently uh, the Ukraine correspondent for The Financial Times. And he is the author of the book Elliot mentioned, The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine, published by Bloomsbury. Chris, welcome to Shield of the
2: Republic. It is a pleasure to be here.
0: Your book is both very personal, but uh, also a great opportunity to get a sense of what this war really feels like uh, on the ground. And you really know Ukraine uh, uncommonly well for Western journalists because you started out there as a Peace Corps volunteer. Tell our listeners how you actually came to end up in what we now know and very famously know as Bakhmut,
2: Yeah, it was, you know, it, it was all all a, a happy or a, a fortunate accident, I guess you could say. Um, I had been living in Portland, Oregon, where I was born and raised and working as a cub reporter for some, some media outlets there. And when the financial crisis hit in 2008 and, uh, you know, carried through 2009, I was looking for... Um, a place to, to, to sort of move up into, you know, from graduate from being a cub reporter um, up to uh, something a little bit more senior, but there weren't many jobs to be had. So I, I, I had this idea um, given to me by a family member to uh, take a look at the Peace Corps program. And so I, I signed up. They quickly accepted me. Uh, they asked me where I wanted to go, and they put this large map in front of me, and they broke the, the entire world up into eight sections. And I said, you know, I'd really like to go someplace in Africa. And they said, okay, we'll we'll see what we can do. And uh, sometime later, they they uh, called me up and said, we're actually going to send you to Ukraine. How does that sound? And I said, absolutely fine. I just wanted to, to have an adventure for a couple of years. And so I ended up uh, coming to Ukraine and being uh, dispatched out to eastern Ukraine to, uh, as you mentioned, the city of Bakhmut, which at the time, uh, when I arrived in spring of 2010, was still called Artyomovsk, uh, which was a name given to the city by the Soviets. Um, uh, And and, uh, it was named after uh, Comrade Artyom, who was uh, an ally of Stalin's. And it remained uh, Artyomovsk until... Uh, Ukraine began its decommunization period in 2016. So the first two years that I lived there between 2010 and 2012, uh, working as a Peace Corps volunteer, it was called Artyomovsk. And I got to know the place and the culture. I learned Russian, met some really fantastic people. And my my task while there was to teach a variety of topics, including some English, um, to uh, school-age children. And I worked in uh, Central Artyomovsk at school number 11. I had an English club at the Central Library. I also taught at the uh, Krasny Village School or the Red Village School, which has since been renamed also after decommunization to Ivanovsky. And uh, I, I helped the uh, uh, local city government with some development projects and essentially became an unofficial uh, American ambassador uh, while, while there and had a really great time doing it. And you know, there were some hiccups in the beginning, and the book, uh, you know, discusses some of them. Um, you know, a lot of local people wondering uh, why the heck an American uh, 25-year-old has come over to eastern Ukraine, to this uh, little city that most people in the world have never heard of, uh, to spend two years. And it took some convincing. Um, and and uh, I think several Bottles of uh, Ukrainian vodka and um, some some borscht and and a lot of a lot of um, uh, really rough discussions at first before they they came to, to know me and really like me but but very quickly by by the end of summer I really felt like a, a member of the community and I fell pretty hard for this uh, for this little town and made some really good friends who remain my friends even today and it really was the basis of my what would be you know my work as a foreign correspondent and the knowledge and experience that i would come to gain uh that would help me in my reporting now covering uh russia's war here chris
1: uh when we talk about uh, Bakhmut today of course we think about uh an extraordinarily bloody battlefield, uh, which uh, the Russians sort of managed to take and may now be pushed out of, but in any case, a place completely devastated and ruined. And I I think it would be good if you could just say, what what was Bakhmut like before war came to it?
2: Yeah, it was obviously a very different place. You know, it had actually been occupied previously in World War II. The Germans occupied it for uh, for about two years. And even during that time, um, they They uh, actually did away with the Soviet name of Artyomovsk and called it uh, called it Bakhmut. Uh so under Nazi occupation, the city was returned to its historic name. then um, fast forward to uh, two thousand and ten it had again been been renamed Artyomovsk. When I arrived, it was quiet. people really just went about their business they wanted to uh, you know go to work. Uh, make money, uh, you know, for the weekends and, and the evenings to really spend time with family. It was sort of off the beaten path. It was only an hour north of the the regional capital, Donetsk, where the president at the time was from, Viktor Yanukovych. Uh, and, and, you know, there, this was the big city in the region. Um, you know, outside of Kiev, there's about four other major metropolises in, in, in Ukraine, Donetsk was one of them, a city of about a million people, roughly. Artyomovsk, by comparison, was about 70,000. So I spent my day, you know, crisscrossing the town center, which took me about 10 to 15 minutes. It wasn't a large place. It sort of sat in this really uh, beautiful, uh, tiny river valley uh, surrounded by salt mines and sunflower fields that I used to walk through or ride my bike through. Uh, People really... Um, you know, they they weren't very interested in politics. I think one of the misconceptions of Ukraine is that it's always been divided in East and West and Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers and that people in the East had this real affinity uh, for Russia and Moscow and didn't feel similarly toward uh, the rest of Ukraine and Kiev. And what I found was a much more complex situation. People had a very strong regional identity and they identified as people from Donetsk region or of the Donbass which is the, the Donetsk River basin where uh, uh, Bakhmut is located. And, you know, they, they didn't despise Kiev, but they were frustrated by the capital because they felt um, forgotten and sort of neglected. Um, at that point, before, before this decentralization that happened after Ukraine's 2014 revolution, a lot of uh, Kiev decided what to do with all taxes paid in the country. And they didn't always trickle down, uh, you know, to regional uh, centers and then to these little regional cities. They actually, you know, uh, were spent in, in Donetsk or in Kiev and, and uh, found their way into the pockets of a lot of the country's oligarchs. And so local people resented the Ukrainian elite, but they equally resented Moscow even if they had friends and family just on the other side of the border in Rostov region, for example, or to the north uh, in, in Belgorod, uh, like some of my friends um, did, you know they they saw they saw their connection with Russia as one of convenience and um, geography. Obviously, the Russian border was very close, so there was a lot of um, cross border business happening and and family that lived on the other side. And and that region of eastern Ukraine is is essentially equidistant from from Kiev and Moscow, right? So it really was you know kind of right in the middle of of this um, uh, these these two um, sort of uh, uh, conflicting capitals at, at times. And you know I, I thought I, yeah I found I found that to be actually a lot more of a complex place than you know I had read about before arriving. And it became more so um, in a really fascinating way over the course of my years there and communicating with people and really getting to know them. And uh, especially during my language studies, which I think is actually a, a good example. You know, everybody thinks that the people in the East speak Russian. Well, that's generally true. But it's it's not accurate. Um, you know, and, and you, you can you realize that when you're there because people do speak a form of Russian. But it's more what local people there call surzhik, which is a mix of Russian and Ukrainian. So I had studied uh, some Russian in Kiev for three months before I relocated to eastern Ukraine. And when I arrived there, I recognized people speaking Russian, but it sounded a little different than the um, Russian teacher who was, who was teaching me. It was um, softer. It had Ukrainian pronunciation and a lot of words. There were Ukrainian words that replaced Russian words. And so it took... You know, some time also to get to get used to that. Um, you know, and 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 I think one last uh, thing I'll, I'll note just to underscore, um, you know, the fact that this wasn't a place that favored Russia is there were a lot of towns and villages outside of Donetsk city and outside of the cities in the region where a, a vast majority of the local residents spoke Ukrainian. And I would go and visit some friends at their country house or dacha, you know, a little cottage, often a village of 200 people or 300 people. And I'd find that it was actually uh, difficult to communicate with people there in my, uh, at the time, rudimentary Russian, because a lot of them had actually come over from Western Ukraine, trying to flee uh, the Germans advance during World War II and settled in these towns and villages and with them, they brought their Ukraine, their Western Ukrainian culture and Ukrainian language. And um, yeah, you know, so it, it was actually just more of a, a colorful, complex place than a lot of people make it out to be. And, you, you know, uh, as, as uh, somebody who's, uh, you know, as two people who've, who've worked on this region and, and, and read a lot of coverage about it, that, you know, sometimes we oversimplify things. And that's what I was really trying to stay away from in the book. And I had plenty of space to do it in, so I was I was pleased that I could finally uh, explain some of what I just said in 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 this project.
1: The book is very good on that, um, and I, if I could just ask a one quick question on that. So the cliche is that the war, um, which in many ways began in 2014, but then of course you have the the invasion in 2022 has altered the collective Ukrainian sense of identity. And I was wondering is do you agree with that? Um is that you know you just described something that was quite complicated although distinctively Ukrainian. But but is that now very very different or not?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think to put it simply if if Vladimir Putin set out to Turn Ukrainians against each other and to bring them on his side, he has done the exact opposite in invading a country and um, causing great destruction to regions where uh, he had some sympathizers. And, and I don't want to say a majority of sympathizers, um, but you know, places like Odessa, Kharkiv, Donetsk, Lugansk, the Dnipropetrovsk, Zaporizhia, Kherson, Crimea. These are all places in the south where. The Russian language was the language predominantly spoken, and people did have some sympathies or interest in Russia. But after the 2014 invasion, uh, you know, and, and especially, I mean, in the years since, and certainly after February 2022, we see a Ukrainian population that is more united and pro Ukrainian, and not only that, but anti Russian than ever before. And, you know, the polls show that. Anecdotally, I can tell you from conversations here that you know Russia is widely despised. That if you know if 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 anybody had an inkling of of um, sympathy for Russia after 2014, and some and some people did, including those who um, you know were, were were stuck or chose to remain on uh, the Russian-occupied side in, in Ukraine or in Lugansk and Donetsk Oblasts. You know, then many of them now are completely against, completely against Russia, and there's there's no coming back from this. It's you know, Putin has gone too far, done too much, wreaked too much havoc, destroyed the lives and and um, cities of people, including including Bakhmut, which is uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, destroyed. It'll have to be completely rebuilt if Ukraine ever ever retakes it. Um, yeah, you know, I'm I'm talking to you from a, a city where. Um, I I heard you know a majority of Russians spoken until uh, the um, the uh, full scale invasion. You know, here in Kiev, it's it's been um, you know a very much a Russian speaking city as much as a Ukrainian speaking city. But now people are very consciously making the decision to switch, and you know there's a really strong, really strong anti Russian sentiment here. Your understanding of the complexities, Chris, I think
0: kind of really uh, suited you for the next sort of phase of, of your life when you decided to become a, a correspondent for the Kiev Post. And the Kiev Post, you might want to explain to our listeners what it, uh, what it actually was and what it did. But I mean, it, in a sense, it was very engaged in sort of uh, not, you know, uh, without risk, uh, journalism exposing a lot of the corruption that was endemic in post-Soviet Ukraine. And some of that muckraking journalism, some of those revelations, uh, when I say not without risk, I mean, there were journalists in, you know, earlier period, like Gungadze under Kuchma, who were literally beheaded, killed. But even in your time, uh, journalists were roughed up, beaten, some killed, while people were exposing... Um, the uh, the party of regions and Yanukovych's uh, corruption, all of which ultimately culminates in the um, the revolution of 2014 um, that takes place at the uh, so-called Euromaidan, which is one of the most dramatic episodes uh, of the book because you were there. So, can you talk a little bit about your transition into muckraking journalism and then how you came to be, you know, uh, uh, present at the revolution, as it were?
2: Yeah, my my time in Eastern Ukraine as a Peace Corps vol- volunteer really got me interested in Ukrainian politics and the anti-corruption efforts of a lot of uh, Ukrainian reformers and activists. And um, to use your 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 term here, muckraking journalists, I met a couple of guys in Donetsk city, and they had invited me to give some lectures on um, the Western style of journalism and how we do reporting back in the US for the Donetsk Press Club. And so I I, I got to train uh, a a dozen or so local Eastern Ukrainian journalists who, you know, were were, um, uh, very interested in learning how we did journalism back in the United States um, and, and you know, journalism is done very differently over here. A lot of it is very favorable coverage, paid for coverage. Um, you know, the, the, all of the major television stations, even today, uh, are still owned by a lot of the country's most powerful businessmen and oligarchs. And so, if you turn on one station, it's um, generally um, maybe not right now because they're they're all against Russia. But um, back then, you know, one station would attack the other station's owner, and and the and, and vice versa. So. You know, I had finished my Peace Corps service and, and decided that I wanted to to stay in Ukraine, uh, but but I also wanted to get in, back into journalism. And so, to scratch that itch, I, I decided that I would move to Kiev, the Ukrainian capital, and find a job as a reporter here. And because I'd been out of the game for a couple of years, it you know I wasn't able to immediately find a job at a major Western publication, but we had this newspaper called the Kiev Post, and. You know to describe what it is um it's essentially it, it was it was one of many english language newspapers that popped up after the collapse of the soviet union um, and was founded by you know a westerner native english speaker uh, who wanted to essentially tell a western audience from a very local ground level perspective what was going on in all of these former soviet republics that were now independent states so there were there was of course the Moscow Times in Russia, um, there was the Prague Post in, in the Czech Republic, and there was the Kiev Post here, and vast majority of other ones. Um, I, I worked at the Kiev Post under um uh, an American editor and with uh several Ukrainian journalists, and it was the one place because it was independently owned and not um uh, beholden to any powerful political interest, where we could do real journalism and investigative reporting uh, without, you know, the censorship that a lot of the Ukrainian newsrooms uh, faced. And you know that meant that meant getting into some trouble at times, but um, you know, doing some really important stories that drove news cycles here and even, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the international cycles, we would oftentimes be the first to report on, you know, some kind of uh, uh, corruption scandal before even the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, or, you know, would, would, would report on on this, um, because most foreign correspondents at that time weren't based in Kiev, but rather in, in Moscow. Um, and that also gave me a leg up and would, would give me a leg up in, in uh, reporting on on Ukraine in the years to come, um, because a lot of foreign correspondents would only come here if there was a revolution or a war. Um, but I had I, I was here the entire time. So, you know, working at the Kiev Post, yeah, was, was absolutely fascinating and a real um, chance for me to cut my teeth in foreign correspondence. And I give a lot of credit to a woman named Katya Gorchinskaya, who was my editor at the time, and became a very, very close friend of mine. She, in her heyday, as a young uh, journalist, um, w- was, was known for being especially tough uh, and asking difficult questions um, and even challenging the uh, the president, Leonid Kuchma, on, on live TV and, and his powerful um, chief of staff, Viktor Medvedchuk, at the time, too. And, you know, she had great news sense. Um, she really helped me understand the country and to dig up stories. And while I worked there for... Um, well, I guess, nearly a year. Uh, we did a lot of that type of reporting. And, and then um, the Euromaidan protest broke out. Um, so that entered, you know, that, that began a new phase, not only in Ukraine's, you know, modern um, uh, history and, and putting it on this westward path, but also in my uh, reporting um, career you know, it's, it began as a protest. It was peaceful. I was there in the first days. You know, Ukrainians in the dozens, the many dozens um, or a few hundred, you know, were, were out there holding signs, um, protesting against then-President Viktor Yanukovych's decision to turn away from the European Union and not sign this much anticipated and hoped for association agreement, but rather to turn back eastward toward Moscow and to seek a, a bailout from of uh, uh, from from Russia, and you know I remember <laughs> after a couple of weeks of this, um, or a week, a week, week and a half, it wasn't too long. Um, one of my colleagues and I at the Kiev Post actually co-authored a story that said the Euromaidan protests are are um, are dying out. It doesn't look like they're going to be able to sustain them. Uh, Yanukovych could win this, and how are they going to move? From the streets to um, other actions uh, to put pressure on the government, and then Yanukovych sent his security forces to beat up, brutally attack a bunch of young college students on Independence Square, and from that moment on, this protest, this peaceful protest, you know, really transformed into a revolution that lasted for three months total. Um, you know, I was there day in, day out, spending long, long, very cold nights around barrel fires, talking with revolutionaries. And, you know, until until the end of February, when Viktor Yanukovych fled the country and uh, the revolutionaries declared victory and and, um, uh, and put in a, a a new temporary government. It was a really, um, a really wild time. And, and I did it, you know, while while working for the Kiev Post and and. Um, filing, you know, several reports a day, but also uh, working as a stringer for uh, several other um, uh, international media organizations, a lot of them British newspapers like The Telegraph, The Independent and The Times of London. And and um, yeah, I mean, it was it was, you know, I, I could sense then that it was not only a moment of great change for myself professionally, but a huge, huge moment for Ukraine and Ukrainians um but even then we you know still didn't really know what was what was just ahead of us
1: could you expand on that a bit um because i think it, it, it seems to me that um many of us in the west really missed the significance of the euromaidan movement or as the, i think the ukrainians uh, like to refer to it the revolution of dignity um and as a result not fully understanding that in 2022 which isn't that long after it's you know what eight years or so uh it's almost like you're dealing with a different country because at the same time you're also having the russian seizure of crimea and Donbas, in which you know the ukrainian military is uh really flat on its back is not able to do very much at least uh at least initially and this is very, very different from what we've been seeing over the last year and a half with a a military that is in many ways quite competent uh, and a civil society that's aroused and a government that's, you know, maybe a flawed democracy, but definitely democratic. So could you just walk us through how, you know, what was that transition like and uh, what are the things that people don't know about it that they probably should? hmm.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of people assume that it was a revolution that was about just getting Ukraine onto a European path, the path that it had uh, been on before Yanukovych rescinded this deal. But after the violence of of this 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 attack on university students um uh in in late 2013, you know, it became a revolution of dignity and and not uh, and, and moved beyond Euromaidan because people were angry at Corruption at state at the state's use of violence, um, but they also wanted um, to sign this association agreement with the EU. But not all of them did, so there actually was this mix of a lot of uh, uh, political viewpoints. You had uh, anti-corruption, very pro-democratic uh, uh, reform activists involved, but also you know throwing Molotov cocktails uh, right beside um, you know groups of, of far right wing. Ukrainian nationalists, who um, were beside, let's say, uh, journalists turned um, Euromaidan uh, revolutionaries, Uh, old, young um, families from you know all parts, all corners of the country, coming out there um, to protest against um, you know a a vast array of 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 issues, to you know change their country. Completely, I think, and 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 for the better, like essentially Maidan. With with Maidan, uh, the country crossed a Rubicon. It, like there was no going back after the ouster of of Viktor Yanukovych, uh, and certainly the future of any um, explicit pro Russian party um, had 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 been dashed. Um, you know, there would still remain a pro-Russian party even up to February of 2022, but they would never see the type of support that they had while Viktor Yanukovych was in power pre-revolution. It really meant that Ukraine was, uh, at that point, going to remain farther from Russia than it had ever been before, that it would, um, that, that it really was set on its Western path. Now, that path, of course. Would be riddled with with uh, various obstacles, and sometimes they would, over the next many years, take two steps forward and one step back. Um, Ukraine does um, have this uncanny ability to be its own worst enemy, and um, you know, put forward um, ideas and reforms that on paper look great, but there is a lot of devil in the details, and you know, some of them would still some some of these. Uh, reform efforts would still serve powerful interests, um, but, but ultimately what what the revolution meant was that Ukrainians were sick and tired of the old way. They had come too far after the collapse of the Soviet Union with all of these governments that uh, were more self-interested or too friendly with Russia, and they weren't going to go back, that they, they were moving forward, and that meant effectively moving westward. Now, if you also, I guess, to talk about the military um, at that time, you know, the um, what we saw during the revolution was a a, a pretty strong riot police force, a a street force of of police um, that, you know, very much operated um, uh, as 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 more of a, a, a brute force than a law enforcement agency. Um, you know, shortly after, I mean, it was just right, what, days after um, Yanukovych fled the country that Russian forces covertly invaded the peninsula of, of, of Crimea. And, you know, with that, what we, what we saw was how weak this, the, the, the military had grown under Yanukovych, and not only, but even under the more Western-friendly uh, Viktor Yushchenko before him um you know over over decades uh the military was was um uh, essentially just not 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 viewed as a priority and russia it was not it was not understood that russia would invade its 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 neighbor right it's its um it's its friend and so they didn't see the state didn't see a lot of reason to invest in the military, but also a lot of a lot of uh, money that was meant for the military was being siphoned off by these you know extreme extremely corrupt uh, leaders. And by the time Russia invaded Crimea, uh, the, the the acting president at the time, uh, Alexander Torchinov, told me that he had just five thousand to six thousand uh, military personnel who had. Um, any form of, of actual military experience, many of them as peacekeepers abroad because Ukraine keeps uh, used to participate in a very big way in, in peacekeeping operations um, you know or or Soviet military experience and, and um, maybe some of these uh, Western exercises that were also happening in the Black Sea and that was just not enough to fight back against a much more powerful, Russian army. And so it was, you know, there there were people, uh, Turchinov himself included, who at the time wanted to, and sought assistance, uh, including from President Barack Obama at the time, and were told explicitly, stand down, do not, do not respond. Any response um, could lead to a greater, um, you know, greater military aggression on Russia's side, and so they did and and what happened was this this you know um taken apart disassembled military was demoralized um they didn't stand up and fight uh some of them joined the russian side and when the russians um very quietly moved into eastern ukraine and began taking over uh city after city they they still didn't do anything and and so you know what what happened was the revolution force that was on the Maidan during the winter of 2013-2014 became Ukraine's uh, military response. These these volunteers, who previously were hucking uh, Molotov cocktails and paving stones and sticks at, at police, took up arms and rushed to the front to try to stop the Russian advance in the East. So fast forward to 2022, and what happened... Is um, and I won't jump too far ahead of myself, but you see a very, very different army. But it grew from these volunteers and, and people who, with very little, if any, um, you know, uh, military experience um, or or um, uh, Soviet era training, um, you know, rushed to respond, and then um, over years of, of Western training and um, um, you know reforms it grew into this military that would eventually be able to keep the Russians from advancing on Kiev.
1: Since we're we're transitioning to talk about the uh, the Russian invasion, um, I was wondering if I could ask a follow-up, which is, I think, you know, one of the great things about the book, among many, is uh, you actually spend time in Crimea and you spend time in Donbass. And I think one of the, again, one of the beliefs prevalent in some circles in the West is, well, the Ukrainians never really thought of Crimea as particularly Ukrainian. It's really Russian, you know, that's probably because they've heard of Sevastopol Um, and Donbass was always a pro-Russian area filled with Russian speakers. So it's sort of natural that it uh, fell into the hands of the Russians. And I was wondering if you could just comment on that. I mean, to what extent, if any, is that true or is it false?
2: Yeah, I well. You know, I I really loved Crimea because coming from uh Oregon, uh with mountains and rivers and, and forests, you know, it reminded me a lot of some of the the, the seaside uh terrain and, and geography there. And so I, I used to try to go down there as much as I could, um especially during the summer when it was warm and, and the water was great. And and you know, I, I would go down there and feel pretty comfortable getting around in my Russian because a vast majority of people spoke Russian. I do not recall anyone speaking Ukrainian to me, um, you know, but that didn't mean that people were anti-Ukrainian or, or, or even pro-Russian. There were certainly a lot of Russian flags down there at the time and, and a lot of pro-Russian sentiment, uh, and, you, and you, could, you could see that um, and, and get a good sense of that the ukrainian capital felt a long a long ways away from crimea that's for sure and if you go if you went down to the ports in sevastopol at the time in particular you would see the black the the, the black sea um, uh, the russian black sea fleet including the moskva cruiser parked in sevastopol bay uh, i remember i even took photographs of it when it was out there because it was the first warship of that type that i had uh, certainly ever seen <clears throat> And so, you know the Russian. The Russians were there in Crimea. They had a lease to keep their their navy vessels there. This lease was uh, expanded uh, by uh, extended, rather, by uh, Viktor Yanukovych during his time in a really uh, controversial move, if if you both recall, um, which I think allowed the Russians to lease um, uh, to to lease the bay uh, through the 2040s. which is quite a long time. So, you know, these Russian soldiers uh, and, and, and and Navy, Navy men who uh, invaded actually came from the Black Sea Fleet down there.
0: It enabled them, if I recall correctly, that agreement by Yanukovych to actually increase the
2: number of personnel they had. Yes, I think to around 25,000, right? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So if you've got 25,000, give or take, um, Russian soldiers taking over the peninsula and less than five uh, or roughly five thousand Ukrainian soldiers in the entire country who are able to respond. it's it's, you know, um, you, you see why why Ukraine was in a difficult position and 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 probably couldn't have done much to respond uh, without significant and and very uh, fast Western help. Um, and so, yeah, you know there and, and I think because of that, also that 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 Russian presence there, you know there there were certainly a lot of a lot of folks who were russia friendly and did believe that life under Russian control would be better. Pensioners in particular had, um, you know, a a nostalgic idea of Russia, and they would remember their life in the Soviet Union when they had a little bit more more money and um, felt that their their pensions would would be a little bit more um, if if they were still under Russia, who welcomed um, a lot of these Russian soldiers as they took over. And if you remember, the the Russian soldiers, they essentially took over the peninsula without firing a shot. And it was one of the strangest things I've ever seen, you know, a a really heavily armed uh, army um, storming a, a large swath of territory without having to even fire a shot and being greeted by a lot of people, you know, with open arms and... You know that's what they. This earned them the uh, the the nickname uh, uh, "Polite People," and there's now a statue that stands that stands in Crimea that was put up by the Russian occupation authorities of of a soldier uh, and and a, and a little cat and a woman coming up to him because there were plenty of people, a lot of people who welcomed um, this Russian occupation. Um, that said, there were many others who did not. But they didn't really have a voice. There weren't a lot of people willing to stand up and and fight back against this this uh, slow moving, insidious invasion uh, for very obvious reasons, you know. Um, uh, and and uh, Crimean Tatars in particular, recalling uh, life after um, uh, being being taken um, to to uh, the far east of Russia or. Uh, many places in in, in um, central Central Asia forcibly deported under Stalin. You know, many of them had only come back in the last twenty twenty years after the fall of the Soviet Union. So they were rebuilding rebuilding their homes and 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 their community um, when when this happened. And they were certainly a a group of people that did not support the Russian occupation of of Crimea.
0: Probably bears mentioning here as well that. Uh, long before it was part of the Russian Empire, it was a Tatar khanate. So, you know, the arguments that one hears sometimes that this is a historically Russian territory from time immemorial is is you know really a kind of falsification
2: of of the history. Well, most of Putin's justifications are are false too, right? I mean, he says the Donbass is Russian, but actually it, it's not. It was ruled by you know Cossacks, wild Cossacks on the wild the wild steppe for 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 a lot longer um than it was under uh Moscow's rule right and uh, i think you know it was a uh, it was tens of thousands of russians who were brought into eastern ukraine during russia's industrialization period to run the factories uh, uh to to ensure that they were controlled um, by folks connected to moscow um not in kiev so they essentially russified even eastern ukraine too so any sympathies that pro-Russian sympathies in Eastern Ukraine and Crimea uh, were largely because, you know, Russia had uh, forced uh, itself on um, both of these regions.
0: I mean, as I listened to you speak, too, about the Euromaidan and whatnot, it did strike me, because this has obviously been another part of Russian agitprop, that there was nothing to do with NATO about this, the revolution in 2014, Yes, it's true that in two thousand eight, at the Bucharest NATO summit, the members of NATO had said, you know, at some point in the future, Georgia and Ukraine will be members of NATO. But at that point, it was it was not, uh, you know, really in the cards at any time soon. Under Yanukovych, had actually became part of the Ukrainian constitution that they couldn't join NATO, and so the threat of NATO membership or of a military threat of some kind to Russia, just as you describe it, just non-existent. I mean, this is just a total invention. And and one of the things that you know, struck me about reading your book was, as you particularly describe the next kind of phase here, which was the fighting in Donbass, uh, it really uh, gives you a great sense of both of the complete mendacity of the Russians as they were doing all this but also the in, incredible brutality and and one of the things you discuss in the book is your tendency to uh whenever you were visiting the front to go to the morgues and hospitals to to try and talk to people there. Do you want to explain to our listeners why you did that?
2: Yeah, you know, as as a reporter I try to get the the fullest picture I can and to speak with as many people I can, and to see things with my own eyes and to get out of Kiev as much as possible. And covering the war in 2014, Russia's first invasion, I spent a lot of time back in eastern Ukraine where it was unfolding um, because I was very comfortable in that region. I knew people. I knew all of these cities. I had worked and volunteered in all of them. I had great contacts and sources you know and i even had a lot of a lot of uh, friends and acquaintances who um you know took up arms or um uh, participated in one way or another on both sides um and and so you know i i i i benefited from having these these local contacts and so when i went out there whether I was in the Russian occupied side during this 2014 invasion or the Ukrainian side, I knew that I could roll into a city and, you know, drop a, a name or, or a place, um, you know, to, to somebody and uh, be be um, uh, allowed to go and, and, and talk to these people at a local government building or uh schools or yes uh, even the morgue and i i would find that in the morgue and i mean when, when the violence really began and i think you know it, it really it really turned into a war um because russia so russia russia's invasion forces in crimea moved to the donbass in eastern ukraine in the spring april is when they began taking over these buildings in Slavyansk and krematorsk Konstantinovka, Donetsk. But it really didn't become a a war until the Donetsk airport battle at the end of May, the day after Ukraine's presidential election. And, you know, I was there and I was was in the middle of this gunfight, which was something I had never experienced before. It was absolutely terrifying. And I was seeing uh, soldiers uh, being cut down by helicopter fire, by RPGs, by by um, a small arms fire, but I still felt like I didn't have a full uh, picture of what had happened. And so uh, the day after I thought, okay, I'm going to go check out the hospitals and I'm gonna to go to the morgue. I knew exactly where they were because I had uh, a friend during my Peace Corps days who actually lived next door to this building. And so I went there and when I walked in, what I saw was a pile of, 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 of bodies. Um, that stretched halfway between the floor and the ceiling, um, almost as tall as, as, as I am. And I started counting and that's when, you know, the, you know, what was, what was unfolding really became clear to me. And I think when it, when it felt very much like a, like a war and I could see what was, you know, what the cost of this was going to be. And, I knew that it would only get worse because the soldiers on the Russian side who were seeing these bodies were furious because they were their own that were being killed. Uh, Later, I would cross back over the front line and see similar scenes in hospitals on the Ukrainian controlled side. And I would see how uh, infuriated the Ukrainian soldiers and, and civilians and family members of those killed were. And I, I just knew that this was going to blow up in a really terrible and tragic way, and those places gave me a more intimate glimpse into the real, the real cost of war. And um, I, I think from that, from that moment on, I, I knew that I didn't really want to write a whole lot about the geopolitics of it and um, what was happening in in Washington and Moscow. Um, And I really set out to tell stories on the ground of the people impacted because it did feel as at times as though, you know, I was in the middle of this watching all of this happen. But people were just talking about what is Moscow saying? What is Washington doing? Uh, What is the European Union doing? Um, But nobody was was really talking about the people who were fighting, the people who were dying. And, you know, I made it a point to try to tell as many of those stories as I could. I also think that. In doing so, um, you 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 tell the the, the story of, of of the of, of the politics and um, you know more, understand much more of of the of a place and and what is at stake. So that yeah, that's that's why I would go to those to those places and and really try to spend time on um, you know the people impacted.
1: You also interacted with some of the more minor but. Nonetheless, significant characters in this story. One who uh, I thought was particularly interesting is Igor Gherkin, who I guess goes by the uh, nom de guerre uh, Strelkov, um, who clearly a nefarious character, although a very interesting one. Now in jail, uh, or at least you know secluded somewhere in uh, Moscow. Could you talk about about him?
2: Yeah, it's only a shame that he's not in a Dutch jail uh, where he was um, tried and convicted. Uh, for for his role in downing the Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 on July 17th of 2014, right? Um, I I first bumped into him in the city of Slavyansk in eastern Ukraine, not too far from Bakhmut, shortly after he had taken over the city with a group of gunmen who uh, were with him in Crimea in 2014. So he helped with the takeover of Crimea before moving to eastern Ukraine, and then. Um, uh, taking over the the government buildings and the security service building in Slavyansk and running it like his own fiefdom uh, for Russia. Um, many of his guys spread out to nearby cities and overtook Krem Krematorsk, and essentially locked them all down, not really allowing um, you know, many of the Ukrainian um, police and security forces in. And, and that's really when the occupation... Began and I think it was Strokov who who now infamously or uh, infamously said that you know he was the he was the person who fired the first shot of war right or or sparked he's the person who sparked the war, um, so that is his own personal claim to fame. But he he ruled Slaviansk with an iron fist and put into place this this old Stalin era um, uh, governing system and and these these old uh, wartime Laws that saw people who uh, shoplifted or stole articles of clothing um, be forced to sit for a military tribunal and quickly convicted, obviously not receiving anything resembling a fair trial, and then be executed in the back of the building by firing squad. Um, now, when I when I met Strokov, I I could tell right away that he was a bad guy. <laughs> um, certainly one of the most terrifying terrifying people involved in, in this whole Russian war that, that I've ever met. Um I I had to get accreditation, just like any other journalist who wanted to work there. So you would have to go into the security service of Ukraine building that he was occupying and walk into um his office and and ask for um his stamp and signature on a piece of paper that would allow you to move freely, in theory, around the city and do your reporting. And I remember when I approached him, you know, he looked at me up and down, um, obviously recognized immediately that even though I'm speaking Russian, I was a foreigner, asked where I'm from. Uh, when I told him that I was an American citizen, because he asked which country I was from, you know, he had some very choice words um, that uh, I, I can't repeat on this podcast, I'm sure. But, um, you know, he said that he would give me accreditation anyway. But if I fell out of line, that he would shoot me himself, and I kept that in mind. Uh, I, I moved around very cautiously. I did my reporting, and a couple of months after that, he finally fled the city of Slavyansk with his gunmen and moved to Donetsk, the regional capital, where Russia had set up its occupation center. And uh, when he left, I remembered, I remembered his office and. Myself and two other colleagues went in there and dug around very carefully, and found a stack of documents that were especially interesting, um, considering that they had uh, all of uh, his name all over them, um, and they were from these military tribunals. and It it, it proved that he was uh, holding holding these um, you know uh, illegal illegal trials. And sentencing people to firing squad, and we followed some, several of the stories that were um, in these documents, uh, tracked down the family members of several people who had been executed, and we told that story. And it was one of the first, if not the first um, story about, um, well, uh, with, with, with evidence of, of Russian war crimes in Ukraine. Strokov, just because he is a fascinating character, you know. Before he before he came to Ukraine, he he fought in Chechnya, he fought in um, uh, Transnistria, the breakaway territory in Moldova. He also uh, was a big fan of uh, uh, war reenactments and um, quite the White Army enthusiast. So you know, he was playing war uh, while also participating in in real war, and he sort of strutted around with, um, you know, with with. Uh, the 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 confidence of uh, maybe an old an old general from um you know a uh, hundred years ago, somebody you might see on like a, a Hollywood film
0: I was reading your book when he was arrested uh, for his criticism of the Kremlin after the prigozhin mutiny, and I must say I was deeply offended when the New York Times described his arrest as uh, described him at the time of his arrest as a uh, Kremlin critic and dissident. Um, you know, when in, when in fact he is a war criminal, uh, as you as you point out.
2: The interesting thing, though, and I I, I, I felt similarly frustrated by that. And, and obviously, Ukrainians did. It became quite the issue uh, and, uh, and, and uh, topic of conversation in Ukraine. It is true, though, that he is a Kremlin critic. And I think one of the interesting things is that he became so after he was withdrawn from eastern Ukraine at, in August of 2014. And, and lived in Moscow um, very, you know, kind of very quietly, but sometimes um, popping up to criticize uh, uh, Russia's military operations here. And then in a much bigger way after the full-scale invasion in 2022, which is obviously what has um, him in hot water now. We're running low on time, but uh,
0: there are a couple of other things I really do want to uh, to get to with you if we can. And uh, maybe I'll just lay lay them out and, and you can uh, talk to us and Elliot, if you want to Chime in, please. Do uh, you've had a chance to observe President Zelensky up front and personal? You've interviewed him. Some of the uh, interview material is in the book. I wonder how you assess him as a as a war leader. Elliot and I have speculated that, in fact, his acting background—you know—probably nothing suited him better for this role than that. Mm-hmm. But I'd be interested, uh, obviously, in in your view. Uh, a second issue I, I would love you to touch on—one of the more both horrifying and comic uh, scenes you describe in the book is uh, you're spending a day with the uh, uh, the so-called Cossack bomb squad, which was a group that was uh, going out, uh, being called by people to deal with unexploded uh, ordnance. And you know, it, it, at that point in the book, it really reminds, I think, your readers of the ravages of these artillery duels that we're seeing going on now. And, um, you know, the fact that Ukraine is already, even before, uh, you know, this war was already one of the most mined places on earth. Now it is probably the most mined place on earth. And that's long before, um, you know, the United States supplied Ukraine with the so-called to the dual purpose improved conventional munition, which is a, a cluster munition uh so i'd be interested in in your um view of that you know particular uh episode and then finally um you know you've been writing about these artillery uh, duels uh, recently as we all are you know watching the ukrainian counteroffensive slowly unfold much slower i think than some people anticipated um and so you know i wonder if you have some thoughts about how does this conflict get you know, resolved? How does this conflict end at some point? And Elliot, please feel free to throw your two or three cents in here.
1: No, I think you, uh, you've covered the waterfront.
2: We don't have much time left. So. uh... I'll get right to it then. I'll get right to it. I think, you know, Zelensky's story is is one of the most intriguing of, of, of the last year and a half, I think. And, you know, the ways in which he's transformed himself and I think the country are, 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 are big. Um, you know, in a, in a, in a sense, uh, to echo what you said, yeah, this might be the role of his life. Right. And, and certainly his background in, in acting, in speaking in, in public, you know, public, uh, appearing in public, um, is, has been beneficial. Um, you know, at the same time, I, I, I've I've known him now for, for quite a while. I, you know, I I got to meet him and speak with him while he was uh, a comic actor before he had any um, uh, aspirations, political aspirations. I met him during his campaign. I have um, been able to see him and interview him um, since he became president, including in the last year and a half. And, you know, this, what what you see is not, it's not, I, I I really don't believe it's it's acting, you know. I I think I mean I've known him to be very much the person you see on TV. Now he has political flaws and personal flaws, but I think one of the one of his, if not the strongest, you know his 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 strongest attribute is his ability to look right at you, um, to understand what you're going through, and and to be able to speak to you and to articulate uh, what he's going to do, what he hopes for. Um, and And that's really been his, his superpower in, in, in um, this, this past year and a half is being able to relate to a population whose homes have been destroyed, who've seen family members uh, be killed and wounded, um, you know in, in this really horrific and, and, and tragic moment, he has been able to really connect with people and to inspire them. And I think the most important decision, that he's made throughout this entire, uh, full scale invasion was, was actually a, a rather, I mean, well, you could call it, I was going to, I was actually going to make, I was going to say it was a simple decision, but I guess if the second most powerful military in the world is, is uh, storming toward you, it, it's maybe a, a pretty big decision, but in any case he decided to stay in Kiev and, and not, and not run away. And, uh, you know, Washington had had urged him um, uh, to maybe consider heading to Western Ukraine or even uh, across the the border into Poland uh, to try to, you know, keep his government together and and to to keep him alive. And he said, I'm not, I'm I'm not, I'm not going to leave. And he stood his ground and uh, went out and delivered what was probably his most famous and important speech he's ever given. It lasted mere seconds right? It's, it's, it's nothing like his several minutes long or 15 minutes long nightly addresses now, but in about 40 some odd seconds, he told the country, I'm here. My people are here. We're standing up. You, you know, we, we want you to as well. We're going to fight. Uh, Russia's not going to win. And, uh, you know, it really, um, I think inspired the nation and, and rallied people, um, to, to defend themselves, and I think that was a huge, huge reason why Kiev did not fall in days uh, or weeks. And um, you know, after after several days, Kiev and, and Ukraine's military finally got their act together and, and put up a very strong defense. Um, and uh, uh, you know, we, the re- we know the rest of the story, right? Um, Russia had to had to retreat and 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 move back uh, uh, across the border. Um, so yeah, he's just an absolutely uh, fascinating, stunning character. I, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap on him by saying only that he does face a lot of really difficult questions uh, whenever this war um, uh, turns to a stalemate or is resolved, because a lot of Ukrainians want to know why he didn't do, a, a in their mind, a better job of, prever- uh, of preparing them for this full-scale invasion. You'll, re- you'll remember that he said uh, repeatedly, um, to, to Washington and Western allies, you know, stop, stop fear mongering, stop saying that Russia is going to invade and that it's inevitable, you're, you know, you're, you're destroying our economy, you're scaring our people, you're causing chaos and panic, and we don't want panic here. And so he said, um, you know, there's this now infamous line that he said, Ukrainians will be fine, we'll be barbecuing by, you know, we'll be barbecuing in May. And of course, the country was very much at war in May, and we had seen the atrocities that Russia had carried out in Bucha and Erpin and many other places. So, you know, at some point, uh, he will face some very, very difficult questions by um, his Ukrainian um, population. Uh, Secondly, the Kazakh bomb squad, you know, I I put that in there um, because It was just one of the weirdest things that I had done um, as a reporter. And uh, to me, a good example of one of those moments where I'm not quite sure I made the right decision to go along with this group. Um, You know, I did not set out to be a war reporter. I was very happy writing about politics and uh, sitting my butt in Kiev here where you can get great beer and food, you know, just like you can anywhere else. Um, the revolution happened. I learned how to report on that, you know, got my first gas mask and even wore a bicycle helmet, um, to, to keep my head protected from, um, uh, from, from, um, Molotov cocktails and paving stones. But then by the time the war began, you know, I had, I had to, uh, invest in a, a ballistic helmet and a bulletproof vest and, uh, was very much learning as I, as I went along how to behave in, in wartime and cover a war. And, uh, You know, I, 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 I operated um, most, most often, um, as I did as a Peace Corps volunteer to get to know the country. I told myself, say yes to everything. Don't turn down any invitation because it could, you know, it could, it could lead to, uh, uh, some kind of terrific story or experience. Well, um, you know that got me into some pretty tricky situations um come come more time and this was one of those where i was invited by this group of russian Cossacks who were uh, a demining group and going around to the destroyed city of Debaltseva after they had just uh, recaptured or well they they had captured it uh from from the ukrainians and not only but um had also devastated uh ukraine's military and killed hundreds of them in a uh, in a retreat that they said Uh, they would not attack, but, but did. Um, And this, you know, this town was, was important because it was a railway junction. Um, They were, they were moving around uh, taking all of these, these, uh, this, this rocket debris and and unexploded ordnance um, back to a location where it it was actually a a Ukrainian uh, bunker where soldiers had been, where they were going to blow it up. And they invited me to come along so that I could see. And I, I got, a glimpse into just how much artillery was being used. Um, in, in about a uh, half a day, they gathered dozens and dozens of unexploded ordnance stuck in the ground, stuck in people's homes. And they gathered it all in this truck that we drove around town bouncing along on all these terrible roads with some of it clashing, you know, uh, underneath my feet. And, uh, You know, one of they were they were chain smoking around all of this ordinance and I just I realized that this is probably a really bad idea. But it was one of those strange moments um, you know, that happen in war um that I I thought I thought was interesting because it showed the weird sort of hodgepodge of, of of fighters and people who were involved and who Russia was using. Um it gave me a sense of you know just how 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 many shells were being fired. Um, it gave me access to a town that was now under occupation, and you um, know permission to go in there. So I got to to speak with people who I otherwise wouldn't have access to, um, and so it was a valuable trip in the end. And I'm glad that I, I lived to 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 write about it. Um, lastly, the counteroffensive, and I guess sticking a little bit with the theme of artillery. Uh, you know this counteroffensive got underway uh, just a little under two months ago, and and it didn't get off to a very good start. To be honest, uh, y- the Ukrainians and, and and American officials as well have said that the Ukrainian forces um, lost around twenty percent of all of the Western armor, tanks, um, uh, demining equipment, um, in Bradley infantry fighting vehicles that had been sent over for this counteroffensive, uh, and that's that's no small small number. And, you know, the the trouble that they're having is they spent months and months, the Ukrainians did, uh, training for the sponsor offensive, acquiring as much weaponry as possible, especially artillery shells and and tanks and other heavy armor. Um, But, you know, every day they spent preparing, the Russians had to dig in and fortify their defenses. And so what we're seeing are these really heavily defended Russian lines in the south of the country, especially um, anti-tank trenches, miles and miles of uh, miles deep minefields. And the Ukrainians are having a heck of a time breaking through it, even with all of this Western weaponry. Their complaint is a lot of this, this assistance from the United States and other Western countries arrived too slowly. It kind of came in piecemeal. The training that was provided by the United States, by the Brits, by, by other Western uh, NATO NATO countries uh, was good, but uh, it was it was only two weeks at a time, maybe three tops. So a lot of the soldiers participating in the counteroffensive are very inexperienced. They sort of buckle under pressure. They The Ukrainians uh, used up a lot of their uh, very experienced brigades in the Battle of Bakhmut, which was this grinding war of attrition that saw um, really experienced units like the 90, 93rd Mechanized Brigade, be be decimated and and now they're they're reconstituting and not even um, taking part right now in the counteroffensive, so you know there they're the counteroffensive sputtered. There was a little break. The Ukrainians said, "Okay, we need to come up with a Plan B." Plan B was to revert back to using Soviet-era tactics and uh, pounding the Russian positions with heavy artillery. That includes these cluster munitions that the Americans have supplied them with. And I've heard uh, from some of the soldiers down there that those are helping quite a bit in keeping Russian soldiers um, uh, from from popping up and, and firing at their, their tanks with uh, anti-tank weaponry and keeping them uh, essentially suppressed while they're able to move a little bit uh, closer to the Russian front lines, meter by meter, tree line by tree line. And they're having a little bit of success now. There's a little bit of momentum on the Ukrainian side, but they still haven't managed to Uh, to to break through um, the Russian front and to even get down, really, um, to where their most uh, heavily defended lines are. And that tells me that we're in for a very long, grueling, tough fight. We're going to see a lot more casualties, a lot of uh, uh, equipment losses in in the weeks to come. And I think, you know, we shouldn't expect uh, to see a sweeping counteroffensive like we did in Kharkiv last year, or or even down in Kherson, after the Ukrainians got going and managed to to recapture that city in the south, it's going to be a long, tough fight. I'm not sure exactly how and when it ends, but I do know that, and the Ukrainians say um, and and truly believe that if the West provides them with enough and quickly enough, um, then they're going to have a much better opportunity to do it. that time isn't on their side. Uh, time time favors Russia right now. it's just got deeper resources. Um, you know they're not going to have to convince themselves to to continue fighting right They're already putting their factories on on war footings and, and producing more missiles and equipment. Um, you know the Ukrainians are going to continue to have to plead their case to the West uh, and, and say, um, you know we need more missiles, we need more rockets, please give us give us F-16s. And um, so I, I think, unfortunately, you know, this is something that's that's going to stick around for a while. I don't think we're going to see the end of this war. But when we do, I, I do think that it's going to be really difficult, I you know, to, for for the Ukrainians and the Russians to sit down for negotiations. Somebody's going to have to mediate at some point. But I think really one side or the other is going to have to uh, almost almost pound the other into submission. Um, before uh, before the other side is willing to to come to any kind of uh, of, of agreement, um, you know the Ukrainians have have lost too much. They've they you know they they don't want to make compromises. They've they've compromised already. Um, they've they've lost cities, families, loved ones. Um, you know they don't want to see a Ukraine that's divided uh, and occupied by Russia.
0: Chris, you've been incredibly generous with uh, your time today. Uh, I know it's late in the day in uh, in Kiev, so uh, thank you for uh, for joining us. Our guest has been uh, Christopher Miller, the author of "The War Came to Us: Life and Death in Ukraine." And if you want to get a real appreciation for, as he was saying a few minutes ago, the human cost of this war, I can't think of uh, a better uh, source for you to consult. Yeah.
1: Chris, uh, th- thank you, and I uh, don't don't go driving around with loose artillery rounds <laughs> bouncing around
2: in the back of your truck. It's it's really not a good idea. I've learned my lesson. Thank you both very much. This is this is a good chat. Once once is enough. Um, yeah, uh,
0: Elliot and I will be on a short uh, break uh, next week. Uh, a little bit of a summer break. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks with Isabel Kirshner, The New York Times correspondent in Israel to talk about her book uh, and about what's going on in Israel. Uh, But that'll be it for this episode of Shield Republic. Thank you for joining us.